Hello, welcome everyone to another episode of Curator's Choice Podcast. This is your host, Ayla Anderson, and you might even hear my feisty kitten in the background because I have re-recorded this intro probably seven times. She's very excited and running around, smacking into walls, meowing and everything, so I'm trying to edit that out. We'll see what happens. But today we have a really cool episode in Lewis, Delaware, and it's a Dutch museum that is completely out of place in this tiny little coastal town. And so we're going to learn all about why there's a Dutch museum there and all about the De Brock, which is a sunken ship. And along with that comes this story of disgusting ketchup. Yes. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about a Fiji mermaid. So thank you so much for tuning in. If you want to see any of the photos from this museum or any episode links, they're at my website, curatorschoicepodcast.com. Or you can also check me out on Facebook and on Instagram. I post little fun stuff that might not really be included in the podcast episode or on the website too. So I try to do fun new things for people to see as well. So thank you guys so much and let's go ahead and get started. We're here today at Zwanendel Museum. Yeah. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah. So it's a Dutch museum in the middle of Delaware. Makes perfect sense. And we're here with Caitlin Dykes, who's the lead interpreter. So Tell us a little bit about why in the world this colorful building is in the middle of this small town. <laughs> sure. Yeah, so we certainly um, stand out next to all of the surrounding architecture. One of these things is not like the others. We are uh, designed to look distinctly Dutch. And the idea is they wanted to commemorate the first European settlement in what would become the state of Delaware. And that was by a group of Dutch whalers in 1631. So that was kind of the whole idea. Here's where the Dutch comes in, making a little bit more sense now. <laughs> exactly. So those, those Dutch whalers, they come here in 1631. The idea is to start a whaling colony. Um, whale oil at the time is a huge industry. It lights everything. It runs everything. Um, so it's worth a lot of money. Were they also eating the whales? They're really just harvesting them for the oil. Ouch. Yeah, so in okay. a way it's also, it seems now like a very wasteful uh, process. But at the time, just the, the pure uh, sort of worth of whale oil was so high. And there's, there's also other elements of whale that was being used at the time. It's actually a portion of whale used in perfume at the time. So whales are a hot commodity. And the idea is the Dutch want to get in on this industry. They do have a foothold in other areas where whaling is really booming. But anywhere where you're seeing a lot of success, you're going to see a lot of competition. So the idea was, let's go to a place where there's nobody else doing this. We'll set up shop. We're going to make a ton of money. We'll ship it all back uh, to the Netherlands. It's going to be great. So for that reason, they send a group of 28 to 31 guys, depending on who you talk to, uh, to come and set up this whaling colony. And they all come from this little town called Horn, which is a small, at that time, a small whaling uh, city, essentially, north of Holland. And so north of what's now uh, Amsterdam, the capital. So that's kind of where they're all leaving from and ending up here. And so they came here because they thought that they could kind of turn it into some amazing, profitable industry. Didn't end up well for a few reasons. <laughs> 
Yeah, so there are two main reasons why the whaling colony called Zwanendale doesn't do well. The first problem is there just aren't any whales. So in the time that they are here, from what we know, they got three whales. And, and they're how long here. were they here? They're here for about a year. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> that is not good. To give you an idea, at the height of the whaling industry, when you're seeing people leaving places like Nantucket, they're getting like three whales in, in like a day, a week. And these guys in a year are getting three whales. So it's not great. Um, so it's already not profitable. And so for that reason, the colony uh, wasn't doing well and probably would have been essentially canceled. So they would have just pulled out of the area and started over. But they actually don't ever get the chance to do that. And that is because they have what we try to call a gently a misunderstanding with the local Native Americans. So Probably not that gentle. <laughs> not that gentle. <laughs> not that gentle. So what happens, as far as we know, and, and we only know this from a single surviving historical document written by a guy who wasn't there, as far as we know from that document, the situation's kind of as follows. A Sikkanese man, that's the group that's here, the, the Sikkanese, he goes to the settlement, and at the settlement there's a wall that surrounds it, essentially to protect it, but it's just a wooden wall. And on this wall, the Dutch have affixed a coat of arms. It's made out of tin. And it's essentially uh, symbolizing their country. Obviously means a great deal to them, uh, but doesn't mean quite so much to the Sikkanese. So to him, it's just a nice piece of tin, which could be used for much more important things than just a shield on a wall. So he steals it. The Dutch are, I would say understandably, upset that the symbol of their nation has been taken. They reach out to the Sikkanese tribe and they say, essentially, we want our stuff back, and we want the man who took it punished. The Sikkanese listen to the Dutch, and they respond by executing the thief. Which is really, really severe. <laughs> Very uh, severe response to a crime that I would argue is a misdemeanor at best. Yeah, so the response is they, they execute the thief, his friends within the Sikkanese tribe are understandably, I would argue, upset that their friend has been executed. Probably they see it at sort of at the whim of these Dutch sensibilities. So their response is a small group of his friends ride out to the um, settlement and they, through false pretenses, by saying that they're there to trade, they get into the walls and then they massacre the entire settlement to a man. So not a single person, as far as we know, survives that event. And this was all the colonists, or I guess the temporary colonists, they were all men and they were whalers. So it's not like they had any real weapons or anything. They mostly just had whaling gear, right? Yeah, so I think a, a misconception nowadays is that colonists who came to the new world were like guys who could do everything they can farm and fish and hunt and shoot and they're great at it all but the truth is no just like today people had certain trades they were good at you weren't good at everything and so these men are not military men they're whalers and so they didn't come here expecting to have to 
fight against some force of people. And so they just weren't prepared. And that means not enough guns and also probably not the skill to do terribly well with those guns, even if they'd had them. So in a way, they're kind of sitting ducks to this sort of a situation is they just don't have the means of protecting themselves. I'm kind of curious looking at it from the side of, you know, I guess land use. Do you know, was there any kind of agreement between the two groups for them coming in and using the land for a certain amount of time while they're whaling? Or was it kind of like a, the, the Native Americans might have seen it as kind of an encroachment on their land? Do you have any idea? Was there any... Yeah, so this is where things can get a little complicated. The easy version is there was an agreement. So these uh, whalers are part of the Dutch East India Trading Company, the same company that founds New Amsterdam, which is now New York. And there is an agreement. That said, the understanding between the two groups, and this happens up and down the East Coast throughout the entirety of colonization by Europe, is that the Native American understanding of that agreement and the European understanding of that agreement are two completely different things. And so oftentimes these groups would say, sure, I mean, we don't own it, do whatever you want. But then when they wanna come back, they don't understand why the Dutch or the English or whoever, whichever European power you're talking about says, no, no, this is ours now. Because to them, they weren't selling the land to the Europeans that wasn't a concept. It doesn't seem like the concept was much more about the ownership of the property itself. It just doesn't seem like that was a common denominator in a lot of Native American ideals. Correct. So the idea to really boil it down, and this is an oversimplification, um, but it kind of plays into this story with the issue with the, the shield. There's not really the European notion of private property and the Native American notion of private property are two completely different things. So to the Europeans, this is our shield because we paid for it. This is our land because we paid for it. You can't take it. To the Native Americans, it's, it's sitting on communal land that everybody uses all the time. And what do you mean I can't take it? If I make it into something and give it back to you, it's still yours. So the understanding uh, is kind of why we refer to it as a misunderstanding. There's just a situation here where two cultures and this is excusing the language barrier, just cannot conceive of what they're trying to explain to one another. So it was probably doomed from the start and a lot of colonial ventures go that way. Uh, but in this case, it was a particularly short-lived venture. So this colony is kind of wiped off the face of the map. And you said there's only one surviving document of this entire story, which is why this museum is here. What, what was that document? Sure, so the existing document is written by a guy named David Peterson DeVries. And although he's not the sort of um, funding entity, he is the captain of the ship that brings all of the colonists here. And luckily for him, he dropped them off and then went on his way. And so he wasn't in the settlement when the massacre happened. So he manages to escape that he comes back a year later and he has no idea what's happened to his entire colony and asks a local Sikhanese man to explain it to him. And then here's the story I've essentially laid out to you and writes it in his journal. So he keeps a, a document of his voyages 
It's uh, literally like voyages across the Americas and Atlantic and also to these other countries. And I've been over here and whatever by David Peterson DeVries. So that's his essentially um, compendium of everything he's ever done. And in there on a single page is the description of this event given to him by a man who also wasn't there. So we're hearing a story that's actually three people removed from the actual event. And it's from that story that this museum came into being. Yes, so it's from that story that the idea of creating a museum is born. Talk to us a little bit about the architecture of this building because it looks very, very different from everything else around it. And it's beautiful, but there's gotta be some story there. Sure, yeah, so this building is definitely, it's vastly different from everything around us. So it's created in sort of a Dutch Renaissance style, which was popular in the early 1600s. And it's based off of a building in Horn, so in that town that those first colonists sailed from, uh, which is their city hall, essentially. So it's a municipal building and it still exists, the original building. Um, it's still there in Horn. It is about twice the size of our building, um, but it is still there. And they actually, in, in the sort of talking about creating this, send an architect over to Horn to study that building. And what he comes away with are, are several key takeaways, and our building features all of them. So we have this really steeply gabled roof. Most people confuse us for a church because it's so steep. Um, it looks like uh, almost like you would have on a church, like a steeple on a church. It comes up that high. And it's an all brick building um, with these very distinctive choices, artistic choices on it. So all of those choices are meant to make the building look even more Dutch than the original, if possible. So we have these checkerboard shutters, which are in red and white, which is the color of the province of Holland, where Horn is. We have depictions of lions, um, which are sort of a symbol of Holland all over the front of the building. Statuary that's all meant to sort of tell you more, more Dutch, even more Dutch. And then at the very top, we have a statue of David Peterson de Vries. So that captain who escaped the massacre, he's on the very top of the building. So it's really just trying to hammer home the absolute Dutchness of it all. And so for the actual location of where this colony was, we don't know exactly, but you guys have a pretty good idea. Yeah, so because the settlement is wiped out within a year and it's never really mapped, although it does show up on some maps, which gives us an idea. The way that we understand it is that it was located on a creek that DeVries called the Hornkill. So again, they come from Horn. Horn, kill means moving water, so Hornkill. And this river, this creek, is now the Lewis-Rehoboth Canal. So that area was widened and turned into a canal in the 1800s. And so now that location has been a bit disturbed. But what we know from that is that it's probably located on a road that's now Pilot Town Road, which runs parallel to the canal, just where the mouth of the canal joins the Delaware Bay. So we suspect that's probably where it was located. 
That seems to be the general accepted idea by historians. And so a monument's actually been placed there. You can visit that monument and kind of look out and see what the colonists might have seen at their, at their settlement. But it is a bit removed from the museum itself. Yeah, it's a few streets down. I mean, not too terribly far. <laughs> it's, it's a small town. <laughs> Very small. So the Greater Sikhanese, you said that they're no longer represented? Yeah, so the Greater Sikhanese were, as far as we can tell from historical documents, they were the group that was closest to our area. Um, so they traveled like a lot of the uh, East Coast groups did, but they stayed within the area that's now Lewis, Delaware. Unfortunately, and this is the case with so many of the East Coast Native American tribes, they just disappear from the historical record. And we can take a couple of guesses as to what happened. I mean, there's the possibility, even though they're called the Greater Sikhanese, that, that means we're talking about like 150 people, 200 people. It's not a, a huge tribe. I think a lot of times people think of, of these tribes as like, like Powhatan in Virginia, like a collection of groups. It wasn't, it was just a small uh, tribe. And they, they either were wiped out by disease or conflict or whatever else, or they were sort of absorbed into other groups fast. We do see kind of the situation where either they just intermarry with Europeans and are no longer recognized as Native American, they get wiped out due to illness or violence, or they kind of get shoved arbitrarily oftentimes by Europeans into the same tribal groups. So for Europeans, they can't tell the difference between Greater Sikhanese and Nanakoke. As far as Europeans, most Europeans are concerned, they're the same. And so as they get shoved west, a lot of these groups end up kind of amalgamating into singular tribes, which we now recognize some of these, like some of the groups in Ohio and things of that nature. So it's hard to say what exactly happened to them. But what we can say is they're no longer recorded and it's not a state or federally recognized tribe. So that's kind of what I mean. So when I first talked to you about the different kinds of two main things that we wanted to focus for this episode, you said that there's one that has a lot to do with the history of this museum and then one that has nothing to do with the history of the museum at all. So why don't we start first with the one that has something to do with the museum. Yeah, so I, I kind of chose two things to show, highlight our longest existing exhibits. And as I said, one has a lot to do with us, one has very little to do with us. So as a local history museum and as a museum that's actually run by the state of Delaware's Division of Historical and Cultural Affairs, we have access to an entire state's worth of stuff. And we're actually the only museum that's exclusively a museum run by the division. So we tend to cycle in and out. Um, and as a result, due to the fact that there's nothing left of the original settlement, those exhibits do not have anything to do with that original settlement. So even though that's why we were built, we really turned into a more general local history museum. With that said, our sort of longest permanent exhibit is on a local shipwreck. So it's actually on the wreck of the Dubrock. 
which was a British Royal Navy warship that sank here in 1798. So I wanted to choose something from that shipwreck to kind of talk about. And my favorite item that we have is a tiny nondescript little glass bottle that's just labeled condiment bottle. And if you don't look very closely, it doesn't look like much at all. But if you give it a good look, you'll actually see that written across the front of it is the word ketchup, which I absolutely love. So we have a ketchup bottle from 1798, um, which is arguably my favorite part of the DeBrock collection. So it has the exact same spelling as the spelling that we have for ketchup, but it was, uh, I would say, a much more disgusting <laughs> flavor. It doesn't have any tomatoes in it, right? <laughs> What is, what is this? What is this item? <laughs> yeah, so this tiny little bottle of ketchup tells us a lot. Um, so the first thing it, it tells me as, as a historian, it, it kind of illustrates the difference between a common sailor and an officer. So common sailor, you don't afford ketchup. You eat your meat however it's given to you. But an officer might have wanted something to sort of spice it up a little bit. But as you say, he would have expected something quite different than what we expect now. So now ketchup is uh, tomato-based. It's usually like tomatoes, vinegar, sugar. That's the essential recipe. There's other stuff mixed in, but that's the, the sort of bulk of it. And that's what gives it its distinct flavor. It's red color. In the late 18th century, there is still a persisting theory that tomatoes are poisonous. So nobody eats tomatoes. So tomatoes, uh, if you don't know, they're a nightshade. Um, so That's why they, okay, so this is really interesting because I recently did the Potato Museum in ah. Idaho and potatoes are actually part of the nightshade family as well and people thought for the longest time that potatoes themselves were poisonous. Yes, so they are both nightshades and that's exactly true. So which also think about, wow, okay, sure, tomatoes and potatoes, nightshades, great. I know, I mean, potatoes are delicious <laughs> and then you have tomatoes. <laughs> They're very vastly different uh, <laughs> foods. Um, but yes, so they're part of the nightshade family and, and that red coloring was a bit off-putting. Now that's to say, not all of Europe thought tomatoes were poisonous. They were featured in lots of dishes in Spain and Portugal and Italy. I mean, people were eating tomatoes in the 18th century, but Englishmen, as a general rule, were not. Um, so they still have this idea that they are unhealthy for you uh, at the very least and poisonous at the very worst. So tomatoes don't really feature in English dishes of the 18th century. And so you can imagine without its main ingredient, tomatoes, what the heck did ketchup actually taste like? And so by looking at recipes of the time, you can see that ketchup was actually, it, it was called ketchup or sometimes it was called mushroom ketchup, which gives you a hint. So the primary ingredient in that ketchup would have been mushrooms. They would have also included stale beer. The recommendation is the staler the beer, the better the ketchup. Sounds delicious. It continues to sound better. There would have been anchovies in there. There would have been cloves and, and cinnamon and sort of allspice. So it's a, it's a very different recipe to what we're used to. And where did you guys find that recipe? 
Sure, so there's actually a cookbook from uh, 1750s that lays out what mushroom ketchup was made of. And there's a, there's a couple of recipes, but that's the one that's closest to our 1798, so it gives us the best idea. And the truth is this was so popular and just a condom, uh, sort of common condiment of the time that it features in a lot of cookbooks. I mean, everybody kind of had to know how to make mushroom ketchup. So yeah, you can make your own. <laughs> you guys made your own. We did. So we took that recipe and we actually tried it and made our own mushroom ketchup. Uh, it takes quite a long time to do. It needs to boil forever. Uh, but when you're finally done, you get something that I would compare to sort of a, a steak sauce. So it's, it's not at all like our idea of ketchup. It's much closer to like A1 steak sauce if that tasted more like beer. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lie. It doesn't sound like the most appetizing thing, but I would love to put a video of that up on the page so people can actually get a look at it. Sure, yeah. You can certainly uh, check out our video and follow along and make your own mushroom ketchup and see how it turns out for you. <laughs> you'll, sound, you'll sound like the really, really cool history nerd of class. <laughs> So this shipwreck that you have all of these items from, talk to us a little bit more about how this ship actually relates to Dutch and relates back to this museum. Sure, so it's actually, it's kind of a crazy coincidence. So the ship that sinks here, the De Brock, you may be able to tell by the name. I, I've said it was an English warship, but the name is not English. Uh, De Brock is not an English word. Um, it's actually two Dutch words, de brock. Um, so initially, uh, de brock would have actually been a Dutch vessel. And it would have been sailing for different elements of the Netherlands, which at the time were sort of a collection of different provinces. Let me guess, was it named Horn something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the name wasn't Horn something, but you know, it's not a bad guess given our connection to Horn stuff. So de Brock would have been sailing uh, for the Netherlands in the, the late 18th century. And unfortunately for the ship, the Dutch ship de Brock, in 1795, we're seeing the rise of uh, Napoleonic France. And the British, in sort of fear of a, of a Dutch Navy uh, uh, allying itself with France, who was their enemy at the time, decides to go ahead and just capture every Dutch vessel that they can. Sure. Because if it's not a Dutch vessel anymore, it can't fight against them. And unfortunately for de Brock, when this happens in 1795, it's actually in a British port. So it was really easy pickings. Uh, so the British just kind of walk over, they scoop it up, and it becomes a British ship. It undergoes a lot of changes. Uh, the British add another mast, they add more guns, they add all sorts of stuff. Um, but in the end, it becomes a small British warship. And I mean like, like the smallest British warship you could possibly be. So with only 16 cannons, it, it wasn't gonna fight any great naval battles. Um, but it was great for what we call convoy duty. So protecting merchant ships from pirates, essentially. And that becomes its job. So de Brock uh, ends up sailing for Great Britain as a, sort of a protector for merchant ships. And at that time, England's big trading partner is the brand new United States of America. 
So this ship ends up escorting a group of merchants across the Atlantic Ocean to safety uh, in America. And it has a lot of adventures along the way. <laughs> um, DeBrock manages to get lost at one point. They lose the entire convoy. Uh, they have no idea where they are. Then they're sailing around the Atlantic Ocean. They stumble across a Spanish ship. And at the time, because Britain is enemy was with Spain, they capture it. So they get to take that Spanish ship with them. And eventually they end up at their, their rendezvous point, uh, which is tiny little Lewis, Delaware. Um, because of Lewis's connection on the East Coast, because of its location kind of in the middle of everything, it was a great spot to meet up if you ended up to lose your convoy. So they end up here in Lewis, and their idea most likely was just a quick stop to take on water, and then they would have continued on their way. But unfortunately for de Brock, it's just a nasty set of circumstances. This is their first voyage across the Atlantic, and they get caught in a storm. So a sudden storm comes up out of nowhere. They're only a mile offshore, and the ship ends up capsizing, and it sinks and half the crew go down with the ship, the captain goes down with the ship, um, and it just becomes this kind of tragic loss uh, of a British Royal Navy ship at the time. And although sad, it wasn't anything, it wasn't anything too crazy until the rumors start. Oh, this just got really interesting. Like it was interesting <laughs> before, but the way that you said that. Yeah, so after Dubrock sinks, the rumor mill starts churning and people in Lewis start to say, well, they captured a Spanish ship. Spanish ships are full of gold. I bet de Brock sank because it was so heavy with Spanish gold that it pulled off of this ship. Stories started to circulate about chests washing ashore, about Spanish prisoners paying uh, for their stay in inns with gold doubloons. And before you know it, you've got treasure fever. And so it starts as early as de Brock's sinking. But by the 1800s, I mean, many, many people thought de Brock was a huge treasure ship full of gold. Now, if any of those people had asked a historian, they would have said, no, we have an inventory of what was on that Spanish ship and none of it was gold. But by the time those sorts of rumors start going, it doesn't matter. And so before you knew it, people were saying it's, it's full of $500,000 worth of gold. It's worth you know, $5 million worth of gold, $50 million worth of gold on Dubrock. And it just builds and gets bigger and bigger over the years. And so finally, as, as time moves on and we get into the 1900s and we start to have the technology that allows us to find things like shipwrecks, uh, it catches the eye of some pretty big treasure hunters. And so in the 1980s, uh, a group of treasure hunters, some of whom had been responsible for finding true Spanish gold, like the Atosha off the coast of, of uh, Florida. So once they, they get involved, uh, they use all the newfangled technology of the time and they find it, they, which is incredible. And they recover everything. Mostly, all that not gold. All that not gold. So all 16 cannons they find and plates and, and shoes so well preserved you could put them on your feet and hats you could wear and, and just everything you could possibly imagine except Spanish gold. 
I mean, why would you need Spanish gold when you have ketchup bottles? Right. I mean, that's my certainly my position as a historian is, oh my that's God, your look gold. at this incredible ketchup bottle. But strangely, the salvagers were not as interested in ketchup bottles as, as I am. And so after two years of salvage, they even raised the largest remaining portion of the ship, um, essentially to find more gold, and, and they don't find it. And by the end of those two years, they look to get everything appraised and it's it's not even worth a million dollars it's worth about three hundred and fifty thousand dollars um which for a company that's just put several million dollars into a project is not gonna cut it and they make the decision to essentially sell it to the state and as the closest location for that stuff our museum sort of became the place where that was displayed um, because we're just the closest geographically and because of that funny Dutch connection again. And so we end up displaying all of the Debrock items that we can. We're very small, so it's very limited, but at least giving people a little insight into that story. But yeah, another sort of one of those, one of those interesting history moments where, you know, here we are, a building built on a settlement that barely lasts a year, and we have a shipwreck thought to be a treasure ship, which never was. So it's one of those interesting stories. Yeah. Well, and then speaking of things that are and aren't really, <laughs> the other item that you showed me today uh, looks right like it should be in the middle of Ripley's, believe it or not. Uh, and it's a really funky little treasure. <laughs> yeah. So the other item I chose, I, I chose again because it's one of our longest standing exhibits. That said, it has absolutely nothing to do with us. Uh, so the other item that I chose is called uh, the Zwanendale Museum's Fiji Merman. And some people might be familiar with Fiji Merman. They, they pop up every once in a while. Um, but he is arguably the most famous exhibit we have, despite the fact that he actually has very little, a very tenuous connection to local Lewis history. He's not, he's not terribly connected to everything else, but he came here in the 1940s and he's never left, always been on display. So our Fiji Merman is, is much like a, a lot of the other ones made at the time. It was made sometime in the 1840s. We're not exactly sure, but that's when it pops up. And it's made by essentially taking a monkey head and a fish body and kind of sticking the two together tarring it up so that it, it looks like it's one creature and then tricking everyone around you into thinking it's one creature some deviant taxidermy <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so at that time in the, the 1840s when our merman would have been created there is very little travel for the majority of people between places so perhaps you live in Lewis and maybe you've been to the great city of Philadelphia or my goodness golly you took a great trip and you've been to Massachusetts or the Carolinas but you usually didn't go very far from home and that was the case for most people you might take a trip to the beach but if you already live at the beach you don't go anywhere so most people don't travel the exception would be sailors. So sailors traveled all over the world and particularly merchant sailors are traveling all over the world. And they get to see all of these incredible things that no one else could ever dream of. But they kind of take a 
advantage of that in some instances. And that's what happens here. So most likely our merman is the product of a sailor's imagination. And the idea was, ooh, you know, oh, I sailed to China, I've been to the Indian Ocean. You wouldn't believe what uh, swims in the waters there. They've got real mermaids and you'd build something that looks a bit like your idea of a mermaid and you'd come home and you'd tell everyone, I've got a great story. I caught this in a net fishing off the coast of India or wherever. Like you said, buy me a beer and I'll show you this mermaid monstrosity. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Buy me a beer. Give me, give me a, a few, ch a little bit of change and I'll show you this real mermaid. And so that's kind of how they, they start. And they're kind of the, the, the product of boredom and imagination. And you get these, these incredible mermen uh, that come of all of that. But they evolve if possible. So as the years go on, we start to see the development of sideshows, things that you know now everyone would think like P.T. Barnum, the circus acts. And originally those circuses were less trapeze artists and more strange attractions. And one of those really popular strange attractions was the Fiji Merman. And so you start to see these things being essentially, for lack of a better term, mass produced so that they can be shown in sideshow attractions all over the world. And so a lot of people end up with these in their collections as a product of those sideshows. And, and when the sideshows finally wind down, as you start to get into the sort of 1940s, 1950s, they kind of stop being produced. And then they eventually start to fall into disrepair just because of what they're made of. I mean, poor taxidermy is not going to last very long. So our merman is an earlier example, like 1840s, he's, he's pretty early. Um, but they do continue making them. And, and we've actually had that merman on display here since the 1940s. And we'll have people come in and say, I went on a fourth grade field trip in 1964. Do you still have that weird monkey fish? Yes. Not remembering the Dutch, but they remember the monkey fish. <laughs> That's right. All other exhibits out the window, but the monkey fish? Yeah. And where did you get your monkey fish from? So our monkey fish was actually originally it was donated so a local sailing family the martin family they got this from a sailing captain we don't know who it was but according to their sort of family legend the martin family got him from a from a sailor and kept him for a while and then in the 1940s allowed him to be on display here and eventually uh he was going to be lost essentially in an estate sale and the Lewis Historical Society purchased uh, our merman and then donated it to the museum. So he never had to leave. How, do you know how much they purchased him for? You know, I can't recall off the top of my head, but I want to say it was something like like $200 or something. I'd buy, I'd buy that for $200. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have my own cabinet of curiosities. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing all of this random randomness of this museum. I have had a really, really great time learning about not only just the amazing monstrosity monkey, <laughs> but also the history of how this museum came to be and where those people actually came from. It's just so cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange, in a way we are the product of a strange collection of events. 
which if every one of them hadn't happened, we wouldn't be here. Yeah. Well, it was just meant to be. That's right.